Are you guys ready to finish up the Lord's Prayer, losing our religion? Um, this week we come to the last petition. Uh, one so important that in Jesus' teaching here in Matthew on the Lord's Prayer, he's going to take a couple extra verses, a couple more statements to actually better explain this petition, just like he did in his teaching in Luke on the petition, give us this day our daily bread. Um, so this is a petition that if we actually get it, if we actually get the heart of it, if we actually get what's under what Jesus is saying, it could change our relationships with God and relationships with one another forever. So this is a very important petition. And honestly, there is no better petition to do on Valentine's Day. I don't think we've said it today. Happy Valentine's Day. Today we're going to look at, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sin, confession, and forgiveness. If you're going to have relationships with anybody, including God, you're going to have to understand sin, confession, and forgiveness. So happy Valentine's Day. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the text. Father, thank you for your word. Your scriptures are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy this morning in helping us surrender our hearts and surrender our souls, surrender our minds and our wills to your word, or bend us according to your word, or make us soft, make our hearts soft. Lord, help us to hear what you are saying, what you are teaching, and may it transform us. We ask that we be transformed in the image of your precious son, Jesus, who gave his life for us to make it all possible. And we ask these things that your name and your glory may be made known in this place through our lives, that we may receive joy that comes from knowing you and being changed by you. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, we're not going to have time to actually go through all that we have done. Um, it's all been recorded. In fact, Ray did a video for the last one that we missed. Um, tell Ray thank you for that. If you, when you see him, yeah, tell him now. Sure. Thanks, Ray. Um, that was a big ask. Last minute, stick up a camera in a, clo in a tiny little chapel with hardly anybody in there and go. A couple days early. That was a big ask, and he came through big time for us. Um, so if you want to go back and hear what we've done so far, it's online. I wish we could go back and review it, but we don't have time this morning. So Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, verse 9. says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you, do, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. I'm telling you, there could be no better two verses for Valentine's Day than these two verses. The first thing that we're going to have to understand if we're going to understand what's at the heart of this as we pray this and how it relates to our relationship with God, but also how it then transforms our relationship with one another, is we're going to have to understand this concept of sin. If we are going to pray, Father, forgive us our debts, and if we are going to look one another in the eye and have meaningful relationships with one another and be able to look at one another and say, can you forgive me for this, we're going to have to understand this idea of sin. And the one thing I absolutely love about the Bible, and we say it over and over and over around here, is that the Bible does not give us this unbelievably systematic, ordered, bullet point list of what things are and how to define them. It's not a text of systematic theology. It's, it's the book of God's revelation throughout history of his redemptive purposes for us and we don't get this systematic explanation of things but he gives us these unbelievable pictures many times 
these metaphors and these understandings of things so they can connect to our heart and they can go under just our conscious understanding of something down to our heart's ability to feel it and to be changed by it. And so Jesus is going to talk to us in, this very, in the very first part of this petition about sin, but he's going to do it using a metaphor that we're all very, very familiar with. Debt. You're familiar with debt, aren't you? You have a good idea of your financial standing, don't you? I mean, if there's anything that you're conscious of, especially in this day and age, it's how much you owe somebody. And if you're not on top of how much you owe somebody, they do a really good job of reminding you, don't they? Every single month, envelope after envelope, mortgage company, credit card company, car payment, school loans, whatever else you've got out there, you're very conscious of your understanding of how much you owe somebody. You get debt. As I was thinking about it, as aware as we are, especially even now in our current cultural situation, as aware as we are now of our debt and what we owe, we live dangerously ignorant of our spiritual debt. We're hyper aware of our financial debt and what we may owe owe other people and what the ramifications of that are for our life now. But many of us live dangerously unaware of our spiritual debt before God. And what Jesus is saying in this and and what he's trying to paint a picture that people would understand, that we would understand, is that when we sin, we're actually racking up a spiritual debt before God. That's what's happening. When we sin, we're actually racking up a spiritual debt before God. Now, with that being said, imagine if God were to remind us, if God were to be as thorough in reminding us, as frequently reminding us as our mortgage company and car companies and credit card companies and school loan companies are at reminding us of what we owe them. If he was as frequent in reminding us of the debt that we have before him, what would that actually look like for you? What would that actually feel like for you? That would be horrible news, wouldn't it? If God were to be as consistent and as blunt in reminding you of your sin as your mortgage company is, that would be a horrifically bad letter to come in the mail every single month, wouldn't it? That would be horrendous news. But here's the good news. It's what we call the gospel. It's what we talk about all the time, week in and week out here. This is why we love Jesus so much around here. Though we willingly, willingly move headlong into racking up a spiritual debt before God. In his love and in his mercy, he sent his son to live in our place and die to pay for our debt. In God's wisdom and love and mercy, his son Jesus became the payment, the price, the ransom, the substitute for our spiritual debt before God. Jesus then, after laying himself down willingly on that cross, dying to pay for our debt before God, was buried. He was risen from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he now sits at the right hand of God, just as we were reading a minute ago in Hebrews chapter 12. Rising from the dead, Jesus defeated our enemies of sin, of Satan, and of death, giving us salvation and eternal life. Then he promised to send us the very Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. He promised to send us his spirit as our guide, as our comforter, as our comforter, to transform us into his image, to allow us and compel us and enable us to live an absolutely new life as his people. This is what we talked about last time we gathered when we talked about what it means to pray to God to give us this day our daily bread. 
And we talked about God's promise and God's intention to give us all that we need, to be all that he has called us to be in the circumstances that he has placed us in, ultimately in giving us himself, his Holy Spirit. So as you come to Jesus, as you come to Jesus in confession of your debt before God, and we're gonna talk about confession in just a minute. As you come to Jesus in confession of your debt before God, all of your past, present, and future sins are wiped away. Our merciful, loving, and just Heavenly Father, the good dad we talked about in the first week of this series, has made a way in his wisdom through his love and grace to satisfy his justice and his holiness by offering his son Jesus to pay the price for our spiritual debt so that our sin that stands before us and racks up a debt before God because of our sin, past, present, and future, gets wiped away. And as we come to Jesus in confession of our debt and our sin before God, he has promised to forgive us that sin, to cleanse us from that unrighteousness, and to allow us to live before God a debt-free life because of what he has done in our place. That then is the good news. As bad as the news gets because of our sin, the news is even better because of Jesus' grace. And what we understand, what is underneath this idea of sin as debt, and what makes this bad news such a good news is that God's grace cancels out our debt. Grace cancels out debt. We don't deal with our debt before God in a religious way. This is what Jesus has been absolutely unhinging for the last seven weeks when we've been going through this prayer. We don't deal with our debt before God in a spiritual way. I mean, there is no karma to avoid, no purgatory to try to earn our way out of, no good works that we could do that would merit God's favor and forgiveness and wiping away of that debt because that we've done them. We don't deal with our sin and our debt before God in a religious way. The grace of God shown to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ cancels out our debt before God as we place our hope and our trust and our faith in that for our sin. We don't deal with it in a religious way. And so you've got to ask yourself, how often do you try to deal with your debt before God in a self-atoning way? How often do you try to deal with your debt before God in a religious, hypocritical way that Jesus addressed earlier in this passage? How often do you try to deal with your debt before God by avoiding Jesus and trying to take it upon yourself, trying to earn his favor and earn his merit through some kind of religious performance and ultimately far from erasing that debt because of what God has done, you prove yourself to be a heretic or a hypocrite at best. Because anytime we try to deal with our sin apart from the grace of God in Jesus, we have denied what he has done for us through Jesus on the cross and we have taken that role upon ourselves, and we have twisted the good news. And whenever you twist the good news of the grace of God for your salvation, you have become a heretic. What Jesus is unpacking, what he's beginning to unhinge, what he's trying to cultivate in our souls and pull out of our hearts is this tendency that we have to try to deal with God based on what we can do to earn something from him. The good news is that he cancels our debt through Jesus. And as we begin to understand this, and this begins to transform our, our, our hearts and our souls and begins to shape the way we understand how we relate to God, it's meant to transform the way that we relate to one another. 
As we understand how the grace of God through Jesus cancels the debt that we have before God, and we understand how huge and magnanimous our debt before God really is, and how consistently we continue to rack up debt before him, but how unbelievably deep his grace is in wiping that way through Jesus, and it's never ending. It's meant to change the way that we understand his mercy and his love, and ultimately it's meant to change the way that we relate to one another. This is what Jesus is getting at in his little explanation of this petition in verses 14 and 15. Far from being some type of contingency clause or rider on the end of the prayer that says, if you forgive this much, then I'll forgive you this much. What Jesus is saying in this little explanation is that those who understand the depth of God's forgiveness, the depth of his mercy, the depth of their their sin before him and the need they have and the power that was displayed in Jesus to wipe that away, the more that you understand that, the more it shapes who you are, the more you understand how forgiven by God's grace you are, the more you're to be compelled to show that same forgiveness and mercy and grace to others. As we understand the depth of the grace that God has and continues to pour out on us, Jesus is saying we will respond in like manner to others. We will forgive as we sense that we have been forgiven. We talked about in the beginning of the series that Jesus uses this case study of of prayer in his Sermon on the Mount as a powerful litmus test for our religious hypocrisy, for the authenticity of our hearts before him. Now in the end of this prayer, he's actually taking one particular petition of this prayer and he's making another litmus test out of it. He's making another test of our authenticity, another test of our understanding of his grace in this petition. You see, Jesus said earlier that that prayer itself was a powerful test of our authenticity. Now he takes it up a notch. He ratchets it a little bit tighter. And he says that our practice of forgiveness, our practice of grace, the depth that we're characterized by mercy and grace is the depth to which we understand and have experienced God's grace in our own life a way to understand how you are being transformed and shaped by the grace of God through the gospel, how deep that's beginning to cultivate and shape your heart and your soul, just how centered on that gospel you are and just how driven by the grace that's come through Jesus you really are. A central way of understanding that is to look at just how merciful, just how forgiving you are with others. Because if we understand how much God has poured out on us, if we understand just how much mercy and grace God has poured out on us, we will be a people who are continually dripping that grace out onto others. If that's, if that's hard for you, forgiveness, mercy, uh, grace, if it's hard for you, what Jesus is saying here is that you still don't understand how much you've been forgiven. And you still want to relate to other people based on their performance. And when you want to to relate to other people based on how their their performance and their relationship to you, you still see yourself as a person whose righteousness is based on your own actions and your own good works. And you have a tendency to believe then that God is giving you what you justly deserve. And by withholding grace and mercy and forgiveness from other people, you're giving them what they deserve. If this is hard for you, 
If mercy and forgiveness and grace are not what are increasingly being characterized in your heart and soul, you have to check, are you still someone who wants to relate not only to God but to others based on their performance? Do you still see yourself as better than them? Do you still look at other people and say, well, I would never do that and therefore I'm gonna withhold this from you because I would never do that to you? Listen, we say this often, I probably haven't said it enough um, in the last few months. I live under no illusion for any of you. No, no matter what you look like when you come in here, how big your Bible is, how many worship CDs you have in your car, how many kids you have, uh, how you school them, what you do, I, I don't care how Christian you look or you sound, depending upon what little Christian culture you think defines that. You sin. You are a sinner. And you still struggle with this in your heart. So listen to me. It does not matter to me. It doesn't fool me when you come in here. I don't live under any kind of illusion that the outside displays exactly what's going on on the inside all the time. You can sound as Christian as you want if you are not characterized increasingly by the grace that's been poured out on you through God, being poured out onto the lives of other people, you don't get the gospel. You don't get it. Arrogance, hostility, you don't get it. Do we struggle with it? Yes. But if you're not increasingly characterized by forgiveness, mercy, grace, confession, as we'll talk about in a minute, you don't get the gospel. When you have a hard time forgiving other people, for the majority of us, it's out of this, this inward sense of superiority that we have, that we would never do what they did to us. We would never do what they did to this other person. But when you begin to see, when you begin to see that you, before God, are just as guilty as they are, when you begin to see that your debt before God is just as large, if not possibly even larger because of your hypocrisy before God. But still, in his mercy and grace, he has poured out his love upon you. When you begin to see that, you'll begin to become a person who is compelled or driven, as we talk about around here, by God's grace you'll begin to live a life that is driven by the grace of God that's been poured out on you as you increasingly recognize just how large your debt before God is and just how his extensive, his forgiveness of you really is. And don't you see this? Don't you see this in your marriage all the time? I mean, don't you see this played out in your marriage? Aaron and I see this played out all the time. We have this tendency, all of us do, I'll stick ourselves in the middle of it, to hold out mercy, forgiveness, grace to our spouse. We have a tendency to hold out on them, to extract from them whatever ounce of flesh we think is due to us for whatever they have done or are not done that's gotten under our skin. But as the gospel begins to increasingly cultivate our heart and our soul, as the good news of God's payment for our debt and the grandness of our debt before him becomes real in our eyes as it begins to cultivate our heart and our soul and becomes the matrix for how we understand who we are and how we live. As the prayer that he has given us, Heavenly Father, we understand increasingly what that means for him to be a good dad. I want your glory in this situation with my wife. Hallowed be your name. 
Do whatever you have got to do in me to make your glory the central reality here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done right here in this circumstance, in this situation. Give me right now what I need to be who you have called me to be in this situation with my wife. Or your spirit is what I need. Give me wisdom. How can I respond? Father, forgive me. Forgive me for withholding grace. Forgive me for withholding mercy. Forgive me for withholding your love for her in this circumstance. As the prayer becomes the matrix for how we understand how our lives with God are shaped and it begins to become a natural second nature in our heart and our minds to begin to understand circumstances and situations and what God is calling us to do and who he's calling us to be, as it begins to, to shape us, we realize that because of his grace, he has not given us what we really deserve and because of that, I don't need to give Aaron what she, I think she really deserves in this circumstance. And my prayer is that she would do the same to me. And as I begin to understand what God has done for me, and that begins to compel me to live out of that towards her and my friends and my children and everyone he puts me around, the gospel is beginning to cultivate my soul. It's beginning to change the way that I'm living. It's beginning to change the way that I'm understanding who I'm supposed to be and the circumstances that he's put me in. Grace is beginning to drive my life and a culture of grace is being cultivated in our marriage in those situations when I begin to respond, not how I think someone deserves, but based upon how God has treated me in the face of what I deserve. Does that make sense? All right, so what does it look like? What does it actually look like? What are the actions of actually seeing a gospel-centered and and grace-driven relationship played out in our lives, in our homes, and in our families? We all sin, and we're all sinned against. And in this two-sentence petition, Jesus ties three of the most powerful things together. Sin, confession, and repentance. And if we're going to understand how this plays itself out in our life, not only before God, but with one another, we're going to have to get these last two as well. Confession and repentance. So what does it mean when we actually say before God and then also to others, forgive us for our debts. Forgive us for our sins. This is a a prayer of of confession. This is an acknowledgement of, of a debt owed because of something done. Now, sorry, my mouth's getting really dry. There are two big things that we're saying when we talk about confession. There are two big things that we're beginning to do when we begin to pray towards God, forgive us our debts, and we begin to go horizontally to one another and say, I need you to forgive me for what I have done. There are two things that come into play in confession. Here's the first one, often the hardest one. When we confess our sins to God, when we confess our sin to one another, the chief thing that we are doing is that we are owning that sin. We are owning that sin. True confession is an owning of your sin. Confession is not an explanation of your sin. It's taking responsibility for your sin. I mean, so much of what we actually call confession, so much of what we actually hide under the guise of confession is really just self-explanation, self-atonement, self-justification of a wrong action or a wrong attitude. I mean, we'll say, forgive me for losing control, but that's how it was in my family. I'm sorry for complaining so much, but everyone else around us seems to be doing so much better. Oh, honey, forgive me for being so insensitive. 
but I had such a hard day at work. Forgive me for being so cold and short, honey, but you stay at home all day with two little kids. Been there with that one? Familiar? So much of what we call confession is really just self-justification, excusing away a wrong behavior or a wrong attitude. Chief in understanding confession is the fact that to truly confess our sin to God and before one another, we have got to own it. And we've got to take responsibility for it. I'm sure your family was dysfunctional. I'm sure your day was hard. I'm sure your kids were crazy. But you had responsibility in responding in the circumstances and situations of your life the way that you did. It was not the person who didn't turn on their blinkers fault on the highway that you came home and snapped at your family and kids. You have got to take responsibility for it. You can never, listen, you can never experience deep forgiveness until you've taken responsibility for your sin. You can never experience true and deep forgiveness until you have taken responsibility for your sin, until you actually own it. And the first thing that we do in, in confession, the chief thing that we do in confession, honestly, is we have to own our sin. We've got to take responsibility for it. The second thing that we do, the, the thing that's kind of implicit in confession, um, is not only do we have to own our sin and take responsibility for it, but in confessing our sin, we're actually taking a gamble on grace. We're taking a gamble on the grace of the other person to actually forgive us. I mean, so much of the time when we confess our sin to one another, we actually not only try to excuse it or, or, or self-justify, but we try to move around Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and say, you know, I'll get better. I'll turn over another leaf. I'll do this or I'll do that. You don't necessarily need to forgive me. You don't need to respond to me in a particular way that, that takes away this, this guilt or this shame around me. I'll just do better. I'll just fix what I need to do. I'll just turn over a new leaf in this area of my life. So much of our confession takes away the reality that when we confess our sin honestly, taking responsibility for it before other people, we are actually gambling on the grace that the other person has to actually forgive us because sometimes, sometimes they don't. And we'll talk about that in just a second. To actually confess is to own our sin and it's to gamble on grace. But here's the, here's the great thing. In our relationship with God, when it comes to confession, True and lasting confession comes when we can actually own our sin and take responsibility of it for God. But the great thing is with him, the risk and the gamble is gone. The risk and the gambling on grace is, is actually gone. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the risk in confessing our sin and owning it before God is gone. He said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we can bank on that. There's no gamble with God. We can come to God honestly and openly, taking full responsibility for our sin before him. And we can bank on the fact that if we confess our sins honestly and deeply and truly, owning it for what it is, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. As we grasp this ongoing forgiveness that God shows us through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we'll begin to see the depth of that grace and mercy and be driven to respond in like ways to others. I mean, here's, here's the thing. Because of the gospel, because of the cross, because of God's forgiveness shown to us through Jesus, Christians should be the most brutally honest people. And we really should be the most brutally honest people. But too many, too many Christians have to get caught in their sin before it's dealt with. 
And too many Christians have to get caught. You know why? Because religious people don't like to get caught in their sin, not because of what they've done before God, but because of the fear of the reputation being seen as different than what they wanted. This is the religious hypocrisy and the religious veneer that Jesus has been unpacking throughout this entire teaching. Religious people don't want to confess their sins because they're afraid they're going to be seen as bad. We don't want to deal with that. But when we understand the debt that we've racked up before God and the magnitude of his grace and forgiving us and and cleansing us of that unrighteousness, we've got nothing to worry about. We've got no pressure on us to pretend to be something that we're not. We should be able to say, yes, I rack up massive debt before God, but yes, his grace is sufficient because of Jesus to forgive me. Father, forgive me for this. We have no pressure to pretend because of the gospel. I still don't understand the pressure that overwhelms so many of us to be something that we don't have to be because of what God has already done for us in Jesus. Religion chokes out the freedom that comes in the gospel. This religious pressure and veneer to be something, to prove ourselves to others based on some kind of outside exterior, this fear that other people won't approve of us or accept us or forgive us, which we'll talk about in a minute because of whatever it is that we have done that we're so afraid of or ashamed of, and that just comes from the same way that we understand who God is. We don't believe he's our good heavenly father in heaven who sacrifices his only son on our behalf to wipe away the magnitude of our debt before him once and for all, so we don't come to him with that in honesty and freedom and fearlessness. But instead we pretend with him as if he can't see, as if he really can't see. We think we can fool him. Like Jesus said earlier in this teaching, we can come to him with all these fancy words and fancy prayers, thinking that if we do it just right or just a certain way, then he'll actually listen and forgive, show favor and mercy, forgetting that he has sacrificed his only son on our behalf already. No pressure. No fear. But we live under this immense pressure. Am I the only one? No? Christians should be the most brutally honest people. Because of all people, we should understand the debt that our sin continues to rack up before God and the immensity of his grace towards us and wiping that away through Jesus. As we begin to understand what he has given us and what he continues to give us in his Holy Spirit, transforming us into the image of Christ. We don't have to be a people who are quick to shift blame We don't have to be a people who are quick to excuse our sin. We don't have to be a people who are quick to self-justify why we did what we did. We can punt on all those hypocritical actions and we can accept the grace of God that comes in Jesus. And we can be honest. I did this. Please forgive me. I did this, Father. Please forgive me. And instead of religious pride and arrogance, humility begins to characterize our heart and our life and our relationship before God and our relationship with others. That's why religion is so repulsive. It denies humility. It denies grace. It denies the cross. It denies the gospel. This is something we've got to teach our kids from a very early age. This is something our kids have got to understand. This is something they've got to get as early on as they can begin to get it. They've got to understand what confession looks like and what forgiveness looks like. We, we, we've taken this line with, with Jude and, and we see it worked out every now and then in ways that continue to astound me. When he sins, he has three big rules. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie. And honor God. 
Under those things, I can pretty much get everything. And I can teach him what those things are. But those are his three rules. You don't have to forget those. And we work every day on what those things are and what they look like. And even about a month ago, two months ago maybe, he goes to this learning group on, on Mondays with other kids his age and they're learning things that, I don't know, that's a whole other thing. But he's got a huge personality and, and he, he loves to be the center of attention. Um, he loves to talk to everybody. He loves for everybody to listen to him. He loves to do everything. He's just full of energy and full of himself. And um, he was having a hard time in the room. And so Aaron would, would, would bring him out and they would talk to him about how he was not honoring his teachers and, and he would struggle. And so they would call me. And so when he would call me, he knew he was going to have to deal with me. And when they called, I'll never forget this. Uh, we've talked about this all the time. We've talked about what it means to honor God and that God has told him in the scriptures that a way to honor him as a child is to honor his mother and father. And mom and dad have said that when we're in this class, this is how we need to behave because this is what is honoring and respectful to the classmates and to the teachers. Was you, are you doing that? No. What are you doing? And you tell me whatever he was doing. So what's wrong? I'm not honoring God. Is that a sin? Yes, it's a sin. Here's what you need to do. You need to go back into your classroom. You need to tell everybody in your class that you have sinned and you have not honored them in this time. You need to ask them to forgive you. Now, he didn't like that. And I told him on the phone, I said, you have to stay in this room that mom took you into until you're ready to do that. And so I thought they'd be in that room all day. Um, and Aaron called me probably about 20 minutes later. And he had, he had fussed and he had pouted and he had cried. But he walked back in his room. At the first time they stopped talking, he stood up in the middle of the room. He looked around and he said, everybody need to tell you something. He said, I need to ask you to forgive me for not honoring our teacher and honoring our time together. Can you please forgive me? He's got to learn early on. No excuses. No excuses. No justifying. You had a late night, an early morning, a bad breakfast. You've sinned. You've not honored God. And you need to ask for forgiveness. And then you need to hug it out. And they all hugged and they all cried. And, <laughs> and they all had a good time. But this is something that we've got to get early on because as adults, if we don't get it early on, we're going to have a hard time. Hard time getting as adults. If we don't understand confession. And if we don't begin to understand what real forgiveness really is as a kid. We're not going to get it when we grow up. So we've got to get this in early on. So we've got to get this debt. We've got to get this confession. And then we've got to get forgiveness, which is really probably the hardest part. And we'll go through this. And this is going to relate to what you got when you came in the door this morning. What does it mean to forgive? As we confess our sins to God and to others, and we would say, God, please forgive me for our debts. He goes right into forgiveness. He says, as I forgive my debtors. What does it mean to actually really forgive somebody? I hope I'll say this up front. I owe a huge debt in my understanding of what it means to biblically forgive to a pastor in San Diego named Dick Kaufman as I struggled to really understand biblical forgiveness um, and gospel-centered forgiveness. Um, he went miles down the road to help me out with this. And so I'm going to define forgiveness for us and I'm going to borrow that definition from him and then we're going to unpack it and understand what it is to really forgive someone and I'm going to tie it to what you got coming in the door so that we can go out and we can make sense of it. But as we talk about what forgiveness is, I want to actually say a couple of things about what it's not. I'll say a couple of things about what forgiveness is, is not. Forgiveness is, is not forgetting. It's not the same thing. 
You don't need grace to forget. You just need old age and a bad memory. Um, it's not forgetting. Real forgiveness is actually remembering what's happening and still forgiving. It's not excusing. Excusing is a coward's way out. It's a back door for true forgiveness and true grace and true mercy. It's not excusing. Forgiveness is not healing either. To say that I'll forgive you but it'll take time is to confuse forgiveness and healing. Forgiveness is not a long-term process. If so, where would we be with God? Forgiveness is not a a long-term process. Healing is, but forgiveness isn't. And when we confess our sins to one another and take that gamble by owning our sin before someone else and gamble on their grace to forgive us, the reason it's a gamble is because all too often we tend to respond in ways other than true forgiveness, true grace, true mercy. We tend to be conditional in our forgiveness. I'll forgive you if. I'll forgive you as soon as. I'll forgive you whenever you fill in the blank. Rather than true and deep mercy, we offer conditions to our forgiveness. Sometimes we give partial forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but fill in the blank. I'll forgive you, but it will take me a long time to really ever get over it. Partial forgiveness. Sometimes someone will confess their sins and own their sin before us and will hold back with a delayed forgiveness. I'll forgive you. Just give me some time. I'll forgive you, but I need some space. When we do these things, when we respond these ways, what we're actually saying is that we would rather sit on the seat of judgment than the seat of mercy. And we have to control and withhold grace and mercy from others for the sake of extracting from them whatever ounce of flesh and revenge we need from them. That's not forgiveness. So what is it? What is real forgiveness? Here's a definition I got from from Dick Kaufman and, and began to change me as I understood it. Real forgiveness is the miracle of a new beginning based on a promise in response to God's forgiveness, which is based on a cross. Real forgiveness is the miracle of a new beginning based on a promise in response to God's forgiveness, which is based on a cross. We'll go through it real fast. Real forgiveness, first of all things, is a new beginning. Forgiveness places you right smack dab in the middle of exactly where you are. Forgiveness doesn't rewind the tape. Forgiveness doesn't press fast forward and move you forward down a road. True and lasting and real forgiveness places you smack dab in the middle right where you are. And when you actually forgive someone of their sin, forgive someone of their actions towards you, you're not excusing it. You're not forgetting what they've actually done. You're saying right here, right now, where we are, I want to start again. Right here, right now, where we are, I actually want to begin again. You don't need the backstory. You don't need the details. You don't need to hash out the whys. You don't need to understand all the circumstances. Real forgiveness is a new beginning right smack in the middle of where you are that says, I want to begin again. Maybe I want to begin again as your friend. Maybe you just need to begin again together and determine to walk down this road of a relationship together knowing what? That there's gonna be more problems down the road. 
It's going to be bumpy down the road. It's going to be hard down the road. But right now, right here, I want to start again. And forgiveness, real forgiveness, begins in any circumstance to give birth to new relationships. New relationships. Friends relate to one another again in a new way because of forgiveness. Spouses relate to one another again in a new way because of forgiveness. It's a new beginning. That's what forgiveness is. It doesn't rewind the tape, doesn't fast forward it, puts you right smack in the middle of where you are and says, we're going to start again. It's a new beginning that's based on a promise. And here's the promise. It's actually threefold, really difficult for us. This is where we get hung up. Here's the promise. One, you promise to never bring up their sin to them again. Real forgiveness that gives a new beginning to a relationship is based on a promise that says, I am not going to bring this sin up to you again. How bad are we at that? If you ever want to know if you've really forgiven someone, just think about how often you bring that sin back up to them again. You'll know the depth of your forgiveness when you can be honest about that. Real forgiveness promises to never bring that sin back up to them again. It also promises not to bring their sin up to anyone else ever again. Some of you might be really good about not putting something in someone else's face again, but you're really bad about going to other people and telling them all about it. And some of you who are really slick at this, take that sin that's been committed against you by someone else and you go to someone else and you don't just dump the details on them and paint a bad picture. You just begin to paint for them a picture of who this other person might be. Oh, I hate that. You stand in front of a lot of people long enough, people tend to get an idea of who you really are and you'll meet somebody new for the first time and they'll know details about you that really aren't true, but someone else may have been offended. Someone else may have been hurt and gotten to that person before you and all of a sudden someone comes up to me and tells me about me that I'm like, where did that come from? Another kind brother and sister has taken a great opportunity with another person to unhash a struggle they may have had with me guised under a picture of who I might be. Real forgiveness is a promise to never bring that sin up again to anyone else. And here's the real kicker. Some of you can get really good at that. You're still really good at that. You get strong will. I won't, I won't bring it up to you again. I won't tell anybody else about it. Real forgiveness is a promise that you're not going to bring that sin up to yourself again. That you're not going to dwell on that again. That you're not going to indulge that sin, that struggle, and that memory again. That's the tough one. That's a tough one, isn't it? When you recognize yourself indulging in that sin and in that struggle again, you're right back at square one, but now you're the one that needs to ask for forgiveness. You're the one that needs to turn around and, Father, forgive me. I promised. I promised to forgive them. But I'm dwelling on this sin and indulging this sin. Please forgive me for breaking my promise. And you know what? Some of you might need to say that to the person. Some of you might just need to own up to it and say to someone else, I promise to forgive you of this, but I haven't let it go. I haven't let it go. I've indulged this in my mind. I've indulged it in my heart. I've characterized you by it. I've struggled with it. Though I promised you, I would forgive you. And you need to ask for forgiveness. Huh. What if we actually live like that? What if we actually live like that? What if we live with that kind of fearlessness to know that we're growing with an understanding of the grace of God that's forgiven us, that we can go to one another without fear, without feeling like the grace is going to be a bad gamble and the risk of forgiveness is too great, and so I'll hold it in. 
What if we actually believe that we were growing in the grace of the gospel enough to come to a brother or sister who we love and say, you know what, I've indulged this about you for a while. Can you please forgive me? Instead of just going to God and saying, please forgive me for thinking this. What if we actually had what it took to go to someone else and ask for their forgiveness? Real forgiveness is a new beginning that's based on a promise in response to God's forgiveness, which is based on a cross. That's what we've been saying all along this morning. The best forgivers, the most merciful, the most graceful are those who recognize ongoing how much they have been forgiven. And how can we hold grudges? How can we hold grudges and hold out for that ounce of flesh when we've been forgiven so much? When so much grace has been poured out on us? This is what Jesus was getting at in that parable in Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant. Remember? Remember the servant that had this immense crippling debt before his master. Immense crippling debt that transformed his entire life and he was forgiven of it. But he turned around and held out on another man a much smaller debt out of unforgiveness and a lack of mercy. Jesus is simply saying that those who understand how much they've been forgiven and just how crippling that debt really was. Just how crippling that debt before God really was. And just how great his mercy was in forgiving that. Those who begin to understand that are those who understand what it is to forgive. Are those who are driven by the grace to forgive. Listen to this. I want to close with this. I borrowed that definition from Dick Kaufman. I'm going to let him tell us a story to explain it. There was a family walking in the wide open land of southern Georgia. Far away in the horizon, the father noticed a cloud of smoke. And soon he could hear a crackling as the wind shifted. And he realized the truth. A brush fire was advancing. It was coming so fast they could not run it. And he quickly searched through his pockets and he found what he was looking for. A book of matches. And he lit a small fire in the dry grass and it burned the grass and it left a burned over place. And the family quickly jumped in and waited for the fire to come. They didn't have to wait long. They covered their mouths with handkerchiefs and they braced themselves together. As the fire came near, it swept around them and they were completely untouched. For fire will not pass where fire has already passed. God's judgment on sin is like a brush fire. You can't escape it. But if you stand in the burned over place, not a hair on your head will be singed. This is the difference the cross makes. This is the difference of forgiveness being based on a promise in response to God's forgiveness, which is based on a cross. There, God poured out the fire of his judgment upon his perfect son, and he bore our sins. Christ is the burned over place. As you stand in him, God forgives you, and he promises that his judgment fire will not pass where it's already passed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in the burned over place. For the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin even the sin of imperfect confessions. For we never fully own our sin and we never fully rely on God's grace. But if we confess our sin on the basis of Jesus' blood, then God must forgive. The father must open his arms and embrace every child of his and he must do it every time. He's promised to and he can't lie. Confession is a gamble. But the gospel is this. All of the risk has been removed. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We can depend on that. There's no gamble when we confess to God. What makes the difference? The difference is the cross. With forgiveness, when it comes to God, the risk is removed. 
the question is, what, what has to be said about you? How risky is it to come to you in honesty and openness, confessing our sin? Is it a great risk for me to come to you and confess my sin to you? Is it a great gamble on grace? Are you understanding the debt to which you owed God, the magnitude of his grace poured out to you? Is it changing you? Forgiveness is a new beginning based on a threefold promise in response to God's forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you is, feels weak. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for pouring out your grace upon me. Father, continue to bend our hearts and cultivate our souls to see the grandeur of your grace poured out on us through Jesus. Let our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of our relationship with you be defined by the magnitude of your mercy, by the magnitude of your glory poured out. Or let that continue to cultivate our soul. Let that continue to compel us in how we relate to others. Let that begin to shape the relationships that we have with one another. Let us see that you did not, you did not treat us as we deserved. Let that begin to define how we love, how we forgive, how we serve one another. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your promise of transformation and forgiveness. Amen.